0: Trust me, I'm like a smart person.
1: From the Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we put the research evidence at the center and ask academic experts to take us through it as our trusty guides. I'm Sananda Cray, and today we're talking about competition.
2: Hey, it's mine! No, it's mine. It's mine!
1: That sound you heard there, that's my life right now. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and we are deep in the sibling rivalry wars. It's everyday. It's exhausting. Most of us have some sort of experience of sibling competition or sibling rivalry. If you don't have kids, you might have witnessed it in nieces or nephews, seen it at the supermarket, or even experienced it yourself. It's where so many of us have our first taste of that competitive streak in human nature that ends up permeating so much of our society. Competition is there in our workplaces. It's in our financial markets, our politics and our leisure time. Humans can be good at cooperating, but they also seem predisposed to competition. And I see it every day at home in the form of sibling rivalry. I needed some answers, so I went to Rob Brooks, a professor of evolutionary ecology at UNSW and I asked him what the science says about sibling competition and how it fits into the broader story of human evolution.
0: Sibling rivalry is probably one of the manifestations of sibling competition. Siblings compete with one another for the love and the affection of their parents, but even more importantly, for the investment of their parents. And that's been a really big force in the evolution of our species. As it is in many other species, a parent has equal amounts in terms of genetic material invested in each of their offspring, but to an offspring, they are twice as valuable to themselves as their sibling is to them so we have an interest in our siblings survival and flourishing and eventual reproduction but it's only half as strong for a full sibling as it is in our own flourishing so really we would rather our parents directed the investment to us rather than to the swine that came after us
1: how do we know this i mean what research has actually been done what are some of the studies that have been done looking at this
0: Well, you can go back and look at traditional societies, so in uh, Hadza hunter-gatherers or in the Pygmies of the Congo, for instance, uh, each additional child reduces the chance of a new child surviving by a certain increment. And that differs between different places because of their economics and their ecology. But in pre-industrial Finns living between 1750 and 1900, there's fantastic records from the uh, the Lutheran Church kept these amazing parish records. And some really cool uh, research has been done by uh, Virpi Luma um, in Finland and her colleagues. And they show that uh, for each additional child, there is a cost. So this is over 10,000 boys and 10,000 girls. And what happens is, um, if you have older siblings of the same sex, then you're actually less likely to marry and less likely to have children. Really, all the children were, were had by people who were married. They might not have been conceived by the, the spouse, but um, they, they were had by people who were married. So a boy who had four older brothers had 10% less chance of getting married than a boy who was the oldest son, no matter what brothers came after him and that 10% translates into about one child given the fertility rates at the time.
1: So is that because that boy who has those older brothers those older brothers are absorbing all the available women um, of a, of a marriageable age in that community is that the idea the explanation there?
0: In small agricultural communities like that the mating market is very small so you know one person who takes a, a an eligible wife off the mating market has a huge effect on your prospects. Additionally, in agricultural societies like the Finns, there were rules of primogeniture to see who would inherit the farm. Inheriting the farm, of course, makes you a much more attractive prospect. But it doesn't have to be in that kind of um, materialistic property owning sense, because in hunter-gatherers, uh, a new child, particularly one within about 18 months to two years of the last one being born, um, can re- reduce your chance of survival to the age of five by you know, 10, 15%.
1: Mm, I see. I mean, I know in the animal kingdom, you know, I'm sure I've seen on documentaries, you know, birds pecking their siblings and even kicking them out of the nest and things. So I presume it's not just humans that are um, so ill disposed to, you know, the competitions that siblings represent.
0: Absolutely. So so for a pair of eagles, most eagle species, it takes all the effort that Two parents can muster to feed a an eagle chick to the point where it can fledge in time for, you know, to make the migration or to make it through the winter. So they really can only afford to raise one chick. However, there's high egg failure in these kinds of species. So they inevitably lay two eggs or even three eggs. And then the first one out, as long as it's vigorous and you know ready to go, will just kick the other ones out. It's called Cainism after Cain and Abel, the biblical figures. If, if you're a baby, the, the three worst things that can happen to you are first, you know, being killed. That's which pretty bad. The first 72 hours of life is the greatest risk of being a victim of homicide. After that, you know, one of your parents dying. And the third worst thing that can happen, and the thing that inevitably happens to most babies, is that mum and dad have another kid. Just because of those increased risks of dying, those, you know, lower risks lower chances of flourishing. So what babies will do... At about six months of age so parents all come off come across all smug for six months and go well mine sleeps through etc etc but at about six months of age the antichrist really kicks in <laughs> the screaming in the middle of the night and the only thing that's going to solve that is a bottle or preferably a breast and particularly in babies who are breastfed they fire up and they get worse and worse from six months onwards because what they don't want is the mum getting any kind of ideas that it would be good to start cycling again, to start becoming fertile again, to maybe even have sex again. And we know that exhausted mothers will certainly do just about anything they can to get some sleep. Um, and so babies in that way extend the, uh, the time between births partly because of the contraceptive effect of breastfeeding and partly because the parents are just so exhausted that they're not likely to have sex. And so they, they extend it out. A, having a sibling three years after you is much better for you than having a sibling 18 months after you.
1: Do you speak from some experience here?
0: Oh, considerable experience in that <laughs> regard, I must say. I can remember, you know, at some point towards a year old where both of my children were on bottles by that stage in the middle of the night and I was often the designated bottle warmer-upperer. And I remember my son having an extraordinary tantrum because the bottle wasn't the right kind of warm. And I just thought, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> there were words exchanged largely on my part.
1: Yes, no, I think uh, I think many of our listeners will uh, recognise that scenario. Please tell me there is some scientific explanation for this, or is it just my terrible parenting skills?
0: No, my guess is that it's a manifestation of those very same conflicts. The notion that if if that other child gets something that I don't get or gets to it first, even if it's the Wheatbix packet and there are more than enough WheatBix in there, then I'm going to be denied. You know, if you're a, if you're a, a cuckoo child who wants to. Um, Get, get the resources and, and um, compete with your sibling then if you deny your sibling that resource at the same time as gaining it for yourself you win twice in competition and I think that we have deep psychological um, affinity for this this knowledge um, and that's where it probably comes from and so any sense that the parents you know even for a brief moment um, are focused more on or more interested in or love the other child more is the the most um, sort of insecurity inducing thing that you can do to a child and I don't think there's any right answers to it and I think it's very very normal so um, perhaps people can be armed with the, the knowledge that it's normal and perhaps have a laugh at it and it's just kind of primordial simplicity might be a way to get through it.
1: Rob Brooks thank you very much for your time today.
0: Oh, they're away, and Gatling got away brilliantly, and uh, he's ahead of the field at the moment, and uh, Bolt going very and here comes Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt, storming through. he takes it again, Blake gets the silver, 9.64, oh, he's retained his title in the most emphatic way, brilliant, 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 Usain Bolt of Jamaica is the fastest man on the planet.
1: You think you know what the Olympics is about, right? Faster, higher, stronger, and all that stuff. Usain Bolt running at superhuman speeds. Cathy Freeman making Australia proud. Simone Biles defying gravity on the gymnastics mat. But the original Olympic Games and its precursor, the Wenlock Olympian Games, was quite a different kettle of fish altogether. Like they had a blind wheelbarrow race. The conversations, Madeleine de Gabrielle has the story. <laughs>
3: Welcome to London and to the games of the 30th Olympiad.
2: Most people think the most exciting Olympic events of 2012 took place in London. But there was another Olympic showdown happening in America. The United States Olympic Committee sent a cease and desist letter to an online community of knitters called Ravelry, saying their annual Ravellympics competition was both a breach of copyright and, quote, tends to denigrate the true nature of the olympic games but knitting wasn't always excluded from olympic glory an early form of the modern olympics gave medals to the fastest knitters around
4: yeah look the knitting one i I was surprised to come across that myself
2: that's rob hess
4: Uh, my name's rob hess i'm an associate professor in sport history at victoria university
2: I talked to Rob about the Wenlock Olympian Games, a precursor to the modern Olympics that began in Britain in the middle of the 19th century. It featured some pretty amazing events like penny-farthing races, tilting at rings from horseback, and blindfolded wheelbarrow races. I think the most um, charming expression of women's participation in those games I've come across is the old woman races for women over the age of 40, for the first prize of a pound of tea, which as far as I can tell, only happened one year. But what a year it would have been.
4: <laughs> so there's also a long history of uh, village football and women participating in village football games as well. So it's, it's, I won't say it's completely a role reversal type activity, but it's like the annual day of the year where people can let their hair down a bit and just uh, perhaps run riot or, or, or participate in activities that they, that their normal drudgery of life uh, didn't give them time or, or energy for.
2: The Wenlock Games were influenced by a growing understanding of the ancient Athenians who exercised both mind and body. So Wenlock also featured more intellectual pursuits and in 1854 a girl named Sarah James won gold by reciting 374 lines of poetry without making a mistake. The Wenlock Olympian Games influenced the founder of the modern Olympics, the French aristocrat Baron Pierre de Coubertin.
4: So the Wenlock Olympian Games are again another uh, aspect of the evolution of the Olympics, uh, often forgotten about. and. I would have to say, sometimes even deliberately downplayed by de Coubertin himself, even though he was a witness to the Wenlock Games. uh, You don't find him as effusive in saying, oh yeah, this is what inspired me, Uh, but certainly he he must have been influenced by what he saw uh, in England.
2: When the first modern Olympic Games were held in 1912, they included art competitions, where artists competed in categories like literature, sculpture, painting, and music.
4: Now, you have to understand, though, that these weren't just any artworks or sculptures or or paintings. Uh, They had to have a sporting theme to them. So that's an important parameter uh, to the competitions that took place. Uh, that took place. The other important aspect of these competitions is, and when you look back at the context of the times, uh, men and women could compete against each other. And this was at a time when women were still struggling to to find their foothold in the modern Olympic Games.
2: Coubertin didn't think art was an optional or supplementary part of the Olympics. He argued right from the start that they were essential, saying...
0: There is only one difference between our olympiads and plain sporting championships, and it is precisely the contests of arts as they existed in the olympiads of ancient Greece.
2: Not all of these competitions make a lot of sense from our point of view. For example, the musical entries were almost never actually performed. The judges were given sheet music and had to use their imaginations. Not surprisingly, medals were often just not awarded in musical categories. The categories also changed from games to games, which meant that in 1928, it was possible to win an Olympic medal for town planning.
4: Yeah, look, as as they evolved, and as the Olympics themselves evolved, and as, as the uh, artistic competitions evolved with them, it was almost inevitable that they would get drawn into that vortex of nationalism. That was that was becoming a, a signature almost of the Olympic. Uh, Movement, as as nations saw it as a chance to uh, prove themselves against other nations.
2: This growing nationalism arguably reached its peak in the 1936 Berlin Olympics.
3: (laughs) Ich verkunde die Spiele von Berlin zur Feier der ersten Olympiade neuer Zeitrechnung als eröffnet.
2: The Germans took the art competitions seriously, and this was actually the only time the music category was performed. Joseph Goebbels, the future Nazi Minister of Propaganda, also argued that film should be included as a category. The next two Olympics were interrupted by the Second World War, so the last time the art competitions were held was in London in 1948, and after that they were reduced to non-competitive exhibitions
4: there's a uh, i think a recognition that the world had changed and perhaps at that point they realized that the artistic competition maybe it served its purpose to that point and that it was then relegated to a much more of a a more generic cultural olympiad where people would show off their artworks but not in a competitive contestable way that that had been done for the 36 years previously.
2: But Rob thinks the future of competition could lie in the past.
4: Oh, it's always intrigued me that uh, what happens when we, what hap- what's going to happen when we reach the limits of human endeavour? So what happens when we, we cannot run the 100 metres any faster? Because we've seen the time come down by fractions of a second, and you, it's hard to imagine it coming down substantially more than it has now. Um, so I think that leads me to think that two, two possibilities uh, exist. One is you will develop a technology that can measure not hundreds of a second, not thousands of a second, but maybe millions of a second. So you can imagine an event being one by a millionth of a second. So the technology may provide a saviour for the olympics in that respect to say well let's use our technology to actually measure the real difference between a dead heat and just see how close we can get that or do we on the other hand uh, once we've reached as i say the limits of human endeavor maybe we have to look at how that um event is performed and Maybe it's uh, we, have, we might revert back to these artistic competitions where someone is judging how well the event is run or swum or, or raced and therefore it's much more about the aesthetics. So not so much how fast you can run. Let's say everyone can run 100 metres in 10 seconds. Okay, so how do we distinguish between those runners? Well, they have a much better style. They have a much more fluid motion and the judges are going to award that a gold medal uh, rather than someone that might be a bit more mechanical uh, in their motion. Uh, So that's that's a possibility for the future down the track perhaps.
1: Imagine it's the year 2050. Everyone has self-driving cars. It's mostly pretty cool, but a problem has emerged that hardly anyone anticipated way back in 2017. The driverless cars have started to collude and compete with one another. Ariel Bogle has the story. Terrain doesn't hamper my performance.
3: I am designed for virtually every condition. I don't believe it. (laughs) I don't believe any of this.
5: Humans aren't very good drivers. Whether we like to admit it or not, we compete. We merge without notice, race each other for parking spots, and generally look out just for ourselves. Self-driving cars could fix all that. By taking our hands off the wheel and letting the algorithms drive for us, we could eliminate a lot of that bad behavior. But we do need to be careful we don't program these old bad habits into our new cars.
1: Forget belief systems. Forget the perimeters
3: of rational thinking, as it so smugly is called.
5: Feel my friend, feel. Plenty of companies from Google to Volvo are in the race to create self-driving cars. These autonomous vehicles will rely on cameras and sensors to recognize and respond to road and traffic conditions. The problem is these technologies work best in short range and to deal with problems on the road that aren't so close, say traffic up ahead or an accident, cars will also need to be able to talk to each other. This is called vehicle-to-vehicle communication, and some researchers are wondering if it could also be used to make sure cars collaborate, cooperate and not compete. One is Seng Lok. He's a professor of computing science at Deakin University.
3: It could be a kind of a, a, a built-in mechanism so that the cars individually reason that, rationally, that, okay, it's better to cooperate. So in that case, not necessarily that there's uh, you standardise the behaviour, but you standardise the way the, the cars reason about situations. And when it, each car's reason in a certain way, it, what emerges is cooperative behaviour. So so it may not be just black and white standards, but it could be uh, a bit nuanced than, than that.
5: If cars cooperate using vehicle-to-vehicle communication, a lot of traffic problems could be reduced. You know, forget bottlenecks, our cars will know immediately to take a better route.
3: Uh, vehicles can collaborate for example they can help each other uh, find car park by telling each other which uh, areas may have potential uh, car parking for instance and the one other that was mentioned is about uh, where vehicles can coordinate the routes the, the the travel routes and by doing so they can distribute themselves and 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 instead of all jamming up in the, in the same road segment.
5: To work out situations when cars should collaborate, Seng and his team use computer simulations that model traffic, as well as cars that operate like selfish, rational agents. They also look at challenges like, how will cars be sure they can trust messages from other cars? And how can we block non-cooperative behaviours and ensure that vehicles do not cooperate maliciously?
3: If you model each car as a selfish agent, so each having uh, its own goals to, to achieve, on behalf of the driver, perhaps. So so there's definitely potential for com- competition. But if they can agree on a way to cooperate, it may be better off uh, for each of the individual agents. So it is a case where if they compete, both will end up being, uh, uh, if you like, uh, disadvantaged. But if they both choose to cooperate, both will uh, end up Uh, achieving some advantage. So uh, this is a challenge to be able to develop mechanisms where cars can can see that, uh aha, it's better to cooperate.
5: Ultimately, the problem may be with us humans, as always. Can we be trusted to build cars that cooperate with each other, that play nicely rather than compete? According to Singh, that might depend on how programmable each car is by its user or by the company that built it. What about the car makers themselves? After all, certain car brands could build their cars to work only with cars of the same brand and compete against everybody else for the best parking places and speediest routes.
3: Of course, there are different levels of programmability, like uh, so if I have a self-driving car, can I just say from A to B or can I say from A to B plus uh, some cooperative behaviours that I allow the car to to make? so it's rather uh, the, the, the user, the, the driver, uh, somehow needs to, to be able to interface correctly with, the, with his or her car to, to know what or why the car makes certain decisions uh, and to understand the trade-offs. So it can get complicated uh, in, in some situations.
5: So these are the questions we could be asking ourselves in the future. Is my car conspiring against me, or is it just competing against every other car on the road for my benefit?
1: If you like Trust Me, you'd love The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation UK that draws out the best stories and brightest minds from the UK academic community. I'm the host, Annabelle Bly, and our latest episode is all about the 1917 Russian Revolution. We've got stories from historians, music experts, and even descendants of key players in the story. Here's a taste featuring Jan Plamper, professor of history at Goldsmiths University of London.
3: And people would exclaim mm, epithets such as uh, bourgeois, bourgeois uh, in Russian uh, towards people who smelled differently, a speaker who would have, who would be perfumed or would have Neat intelligentsia fingers would be less credible if it were, you know, a speaker from the left giving a speech. There were so many speeches in the streets during throughout 1917. uh, He, most of them were male, would lose in credibility if his kind of the sensory markers of his body physically gave him away as being of a different class background and not being credible.
1: Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation where we ask the academic experts to shed some light on the issues that they know inside out. Special thanks today to Rob Brooks, Rob Hess and Sang Loke. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. And we've used music in this episode by Poddington Bear and others from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out at the start of every month. And in December, we're hearing from University of Wollongong academic Siobhan McHugh about some really fascinating and sometimes unsettling stories she's uncovered into her research into the dark history of Australia's Catholic-Protestant divide. When my mother died, her brother sent me a sympathy card and all he wrote on it was, Dear Gay, there's one thing I remember about your mother. She married a Catholic. Find us in Subscribe, in iTunes, Pocket Casts or wherever you find your podcasts. Or listen to us on the website at theconversation.com.